1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And over the summer, we did a podcast on Ned Kelly, and we talked about this mystery of a skull that was turned in by... It was turned into Australian authorities by a farmer named Tom Baxter in 2009. And Baxter wouldn't say how he came to have it, but he claimed that it was the skull of Ned Kelly, a notorious bushranger who was captured, convicted, and hanged back in the 1800s after getting into a now-famous shootout with the police, which we covered in our episode, Ned Kelly's Last Stand.
2: We also speculated it's a little shady to not mention how you come across the head. I don't know. That sounds... I was suspicious of that. Yeah,
0: there's still more to know there, especially in light of recent news. But the skull had been stolen from Melbourne jail in 1978, so there was a chance that the one Baxter turned in could have been authentic. But experts at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine had trouble IDing it. And so by the time of that last podcast we did, the story had kind of gone cold. But then, just the other day, September 1st, another Ned Kelly story broke, and we heard from listeners all over the world about this immediately. We got
2: so many emails. I know, I feel like I arrived at work, and I my entire inbox was filled with Ned Kelly-related emails. It was really, a I think it was a shining moment for Stuff You Missed in History Class listeners. Clearly, everyone was on alert for Ned Kelly news, and I was I was touched that everybody thought of us, too. So that news wasn't about the skull, but the rest of Ned Kelly's remains had been identified. His body had been moved from Melbourne Jail to Pentridge Prison back in 1929 and buried there in a mass grave with 33 other prisoners. So after the skull surfaced, the remains had been exhumed in 2009, and the VIFM was able to identify those remains, thanks largely to a DNA sample that was taken from a Melbourne school teacher named Lee Oliver, who is the great-grandson of Kelly's sister. So a little modern science coming into play here.
0: Yeah, and how cool is that? I mean, he must be like the most famous person in Australia at the moment. Probably. Can you imagine being one of his students? But Anyway, the the remains, they're an almost complete skeleton with a lot of wear and tear, as you might imagine if you know anything about the Ned Kelly story, and it's missing most of a skull. So there's definitely more to come on this story, and we'll pick up with that a little more later on. But, of course, hearing about this exciting discovery reminded us how fascinated we are by the stories of bushrangers, who are of course Australian outlaws or bandits who rob stagecoaches, banks, and small settlements for about 100 years, starting in the late 1700s. And in our last podcast, we talked a little bit about bushrangers. And there were a lot of them, thousands, in fact, during the time that we talked about. They even outnumbered the number of Wild West outlaws in America, just to give you kind of an idea for comparison's sake. But we also mentioned that there are two distinct subperiods of Bush ranging right Sarah
2: yes yeah, so there's one from about seventeen eighty nine to the 1850s and those bushrangers were mostly escaped convicts and that's the group that for the most part we're going to be talking about today that first wave of bushrangers but We've got to discuss the convict situation a little bit, too, because in case some of you don't know, there was a very strange prisoner deal going on in Australia during the 1800s or even the 1700s. So just some background information for you here. Australia was settled by Britain in the late 18th century, and most of the first settlers who came over in 1787 were convicted British felons. And some of them had been stuck on prison ships for years and years because after the American Revolution, that had put a stop to the practice of dumping criminals in the American colonies to work as indentured servants. So the first bushrangers were convict bolters who were transported villains who escaped prison or the settlements and turn to crime, turn to bushrangering.
0: And and like I said, that's the group that we're going to mostly talk about today. Yes, but then fast forward to 1853 when British Parliament passes the Penal Servitude Act, and this ends almost all transportation sentences, and that really changes things. Many bushrangers after that are native-born, or at least free settlers who had broken the law. So a very distinct difference in these bushrangers that we're going to be talking about today.
2: Consequently, two distinct podcasts.
0: Yes, which we're very excited about because we love this topic. We really hope that you guys do too because we're going to be talking about it for a couple (laughs) episodes. Judging (laughs) by the volume
2: of emails, I'm pretty sure most of these folks
0: like Bush Rangers, Australian history. So fingers crossed. Hope y'all like this. Yeah, I mean, if you like the Ned Kelly story, then you should like something about these two, because it wasn't just about Ned. It started way before him. And the man who's actually believed to be Australia's first Bushranger was one of those transported convicts that Sarah just talked about. His name was John Caesar, but he was better known as Black Caesar. And he was of African descent and was probably born in either the West Indies or in Madagascar. It's kind of uncertain.
2: Yeah, we're going to pick up with him about 1786 when he was living as a servant in England and in March of that year he was charged with stealing 12 pounds from a dwelling house and was sentenced to transportation for 7 years so he arrived in Australia in January of 1788 and he set about working as a laborer in the colony because Yeah, it wasn't just like you were transported
0: to Australia and then you could remake your life. It was hard work waiting on the other side. Exactly. And from what we know of Black Caesar, he was no criminal mastermind. He was actually thought of, I think, as kind of a hard worker, but he was definitely someone that you wouldn't want to mess with. He was very tall, some sources say maybe as much as seven feet, or although that may be an exaggeration, we're not sure. But he was very muscular, and he was known to be a fierce fighter. He was also known, and this is interesting, for his big appetite. All sources seem to mention that. That's what
2: gets him in trouble here, because in the colony, there was often a shortage of food, and all of the convicts were on really strict rations. And it was said that Caesar could often polish off two days' worth of rations in one day, and yeah, that, like I said, this gets him into trouble eventually.
0: Yeah, I mean, it could be part of the reason that led him into what comes later. Some sources suggest that, at least, because, I mean, we joke about it a little bit. It's a funny thing to bring up about somebody in, in historical man. sources. Yeah, that he was a hungry guy. But with, as we said, the shortage of food, it could have been a serious situation. Actually, there's another later bushranger called Matt Gambit. He came around in around 1822, and we're not going to talk about him in depth, but he was known as the cannibal bushranger. Because when he went off with his gang and there weren't enough settlers to steal from and they ran out of food, he would actually eat his gang members.
2: Oh, gosh. And yet he continued to be able to recruit them?
0: No, I don't think he was after (laughs) that. I think he kind of ate up his entire (laughs) gang.
2: An end to his yeah, career.
0: getting back to Black Caesar, that was just sort of an aside. Um, but he got caught stealing again in 1789, which earned him a life sentence this time of transportation. But of course, he didn't just sit around and accept that fate. In 1790, he escaped to the countryside outside of Sydney with a stolen musket. And this was just the first in a series of escapes that Caesar would pull off over the next few years from about 1790 to 1796. And while he was on the lamb, he would sort of... Survived by stealing from the settlement and from government gardens. Still had food on his mind. Definitely. But it was after his final escape in 1795 that his bush-ranging activities really commenced. At that point, he led a gang of absconders and vagabonds in the Port Jackson area, and they'd raid settlers and rob lone travelers.
2: Yeah, and it's funny. We've talked about criminals like this before, who everything seems to be blamed on, but it was said that Caesar was blamed for pretty much every crime that was committed around that time. The seven foot tall, potentially striking man, just Seemed to be a a person who captured the public's imagination even then.
0: Yeah. So as you might imagine, the governor wanted him caught, and so he offered five gallons of rum for his capture. And Caesar was shot dead, consequently, by a man named John Wimbo at Liberty Plains in 1796.
2: Just a little side note on rum too. It must have been a pretty big motivator at the time for apprehending much like food these criminals. Yeah. Twenty gallons of rum was offered as a reward for the capture of another bush named Matthew Brady in the 1810s. So, yeah, we're going to talk maybe in the next episode about the legal options of capturing these bushrangers, but I like that rum was, was a prime motivator in the early years, at least. So our next bushranger pushes us into the 19th century. His name is Bold Jack Donahue, and sometimes he's known as the wild colonial boy. More on that later. But he was born in Dublin, John Donahue, probably around 1806. But by April 1823, he had already run afoul of the law in his home country for something described as intent to commit a felony. And for that, he was sentenced to transportation for life, uh, which, of course, meant going to Australia. And as we mentioned in Black Caesar's section there, it didn't mean just a free ticket Australia. It meant a lot of hard work. And Donahue was first assigned to work for a man named John Pagan, and then work on a road gang, and then finally for a guy named Major West, who was a surgeon. Consequently, he started running into some fellow convicts.
0: Yeah, so they started hanging out together, and they began robbing wagons traveling west of Sydney. And when he and two of his buddies, men named Smith and Kilroy, or maybe Gilroy, got caught finally in 1828, they were found guilty of two counts of robbery each and sentenced to die, two times each, two death sentences. Just to be sure. So Kilroy and Smith met their ends at the noose, but Donahue somehow escaped between the courthouse and the jail. And he didn't sulk off into hiding after that, though. He rounded up a gang of English and Irish convicts and just expanded his range. So he kind of doubled his efforts there across the countryside. So Donahue
2: is a real ballad type of guy, a Robin Hood type bushranger who people like to romanticize later. He would distribute stolen items to the poor. He would let some people go. And to go along with this, he had an appropriately Robin Hood-like rakish style, which also made him sort of popular, made settlers like him. He'd wear a black hat. He'd wear this fine blue coat lined in silk and lace-up boots. So he really must have cut quite a, a figure out among all of these
0: rough-and-tumble-looking men. Yeah, I don't know, though. He sounds more button-cute than rakish to me. Posters announcing the 20-pound reward on his head described him as 22 years old, five foot four, with freckles, flaxen hair, blue eyes, and a scar under the left not- nostril. Yeah,
2: he sounds like you might mistake him for a teenager. <laughs> but... Well, you know, he's coming at a disadvantage right after Black Caesar, probably. That's true. And he does have the scar, which is kind of scary. (laughs) He does have the scar. Finally, though, on September 1st, 1830, a group of soldiers and police found the gang hiding in Scrub near Campbellstown. And Donahue is said to have urged them on with some real fighting words, but he was soon struck down by a guy named Trooper Muggleston. Uh, we'll just let that <laughs> let that name slide. Uh, he lived on, though, even even after death, quite obviously.
0: Yeah, so first, unlike many of our later bushrangers, whose surviving images are usually heavily bearded post-mortem photographs, Donahue had a rather elegant death drawing done by Sir Thomas Mitchell, who added some Byron lines at the end to complete the effect. They were, No matter, I have bared my brow, Fair in death's face before and now. He also has something
2: maybe a little more appropriate than romantic poetry, though. He was likely the inspiration for a very famous outlaw anthem, The Wild Colonial Boy, which was popular in Australia until it was banned finally as being seditious, and it stayed popular after that. That probably only helped its reputation. The song is about a fictitious bushranger who goes by different names in different versions of the song. It is, after all, a ballad. Sometimes it's Jim Doolin, sometimes Jack Dubbins, sometimes John Dowling, but it always sticks to those JD initials, just like Jack Donahue.
0: So the next bushranger on our list wasn't a convict, but he was born abroad in Scotland. His name was originally Francis or Frank Christie, and he moved to Sydney with his parents in 1834 when he was about four years old. He started his life of crime fairly young and got caught stealing horses in 1850 when he was around 20 years old. He was sentenced to five years of hard labor for this, but he escaped to New South Wales after only serving about six months, and he went right back to stealing horses. So in 1854, he was caught again and convicted again under the name Francis Clark this time. And this time he was sentenced to seven years, but he was given a ticket of leave. So basically released in 1859. He didn't play by the rules after that, though. He broke parole and went south where he opened a butchery as Frank Gardner, which is how most people know him today, in Lambing Flat, and he was probably trading in stolen meat there. So not even that was on the up and up. Sounds so gross to me. I'm sure it (laughs) it
2: is like legitimate, but stolen meat for sale, you know, buy it here at my store. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, a warrant was issued for Gardner's arrest, and rather than Face yet another trial and possibly more jail time, Frank took to the bush. And there he teamed up with a couple other outlaws, one named Ben Hall. We're going to talk about him in the next episode. And another guy named John Gilbert. And he became known and feared for his highway robberies in particular along the trade routes of New South Wales. And the police couldn't catch his gang because they just moved so quickly and they used a kind of bush telegraph system to
0: help them get along. Yeah, Frank was actually called king of the road around this time for his highway robber reputation. But on June 15, 1862, Frank's gang pulled off their biggest robbery yet. And it's actually what's said to be the biggest bushranger robbery ever. And this crime was when they bailed up or held up. Oh, that's what that That's what bailed up means. They held up the Lachlan Gold Escort and made off with 14,000 pounds worth of gold and cash, which is worth about one and a quarter million U.S. dollars today. And after this, Frank took off with his mistress, Kate, and they opened a little store and shanty in Queensland and as Mr. and Mrs. Christie. So he had kind of a business streak to him. Yeah. And they lived there until the New South Wales police finally tracked him down in February 1864. So Frank was sentenced to 32 years hard labor, which was considered a pretty harsh sentence at this time.
2: Fortunately, though, he had a good attorney, William Daly, who petitioned the governor to use his prerogative of mercy. And the governor really did release Frank in 1874 under the condition that he leave the country. There was some controversy over this decision. But ultimately, Frank Gardner left Australia in July 1874. And by the beginning of 1875, he was in San Francisco. I mean, just the perfect place for for this guy. He opened a saloon there. It was called the Twilight Saloon it was on the waterfront. And by all accounts, he avoided trouble for the rest of his life. He really did have a business streak, like you mentioned, even though he was pretty open about his past. He'd like to tell tales about his time as an outlaw, which I would imagine that would make you a successful saloon owner. People loved to hear stories. Oh, like yeah. That. I feel
0: like that's almost a requirement to have a good <laughs> yeah. storytelling streak, if not at least good stories to tell. But Frank was also just a really rare case among bushrangers and in that he lived to a, a ripe old age, and he's since been called the father of bush ranging. So,
2: Frank seems like the perfect guy to leave off on, at least for this first part of our Bush Ranger series. Yeah, but I feel
0: like he's kind of a good transition between those convict bolters we talked about and then the later Bush Rangers. First
2: generation, second generation. Yeah, so w- while we're going to leave that generation behind, we do have one more piece of information about that mystery Ned Kelly had. And this came out just the other day, September 7th. And again, it's from the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. So while they did identify the body. They also recently said that that mystery head might be that of a notorious serial killer named Frederick Deeming. So Deeming was born in England. He was a Thief, a serial bigamist, and he set out on this wandering sort of life, and he was also a murderer. He was supposed to have buried his first wife and four children beneath the floor of their rented home and then murdered
0: a second wife in Melbourne. So what a weird connection here. It's a very strange twist to the story, and I think it's interesting that it, it's the head of another criminal, but someone who has just a very different connotation to them than Ned Kelly Cuz yeah. You know, you say Ned Kelly, and he's kind of a folk hero, and this guy was definitely the opposite.
2: And I encourage you guys to look up this story and read a little bit more about Frederick Deeming because he had a very controversial trial. And and like you mentioned, it was partly because there was nothing redeeming about him. He was not a folk hero. He was a serial killer. Yeah, the
0: public did not like him. And I think it's an interesting story for people outside of Australia too, because he was kind of all over the place. He lived in England before and I think that's where he murdered his original family. He yeah, had some South connections. South Africa, yeah. South
2: America, all kinds of places. Um, But I mean, of all of all the people's heads, it could be a random serial killer. Go figure. So um, now that we've wrapped up Ned Kelly's side of the Bushranger story, we are free to continue next time with the later generation of Bushrangers. The ones yeah. who are more contemporary with him.
0: Yeah, and speaking of reputations of bushrangers, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that these are criminals, too. I know we kind of talk about them in a fun way, but I think some of that will come out in the next episode as well. We have some shady characters, some cruel men in the next bunch. Yeah.
2: But while
0: we are on the topic
2: of Australia, we also wanted to do a little listener mail. that was a special
0: presence edition of Listener mail. <laughs> we have a postcard here from Howard and he says Dear Dublina and Sarah, I really enjoy the podcast and to say thanks I have enclosed some Whitby Jet earrings. Whitby Jet has a history connection because it was made famous by Queen Victoria when in mourning. The stone has been used for jewelry since the Bronze Age and the term Jet Black is from the stone. So very interesting and very nice gift. Thank you so much, Howard. That was totally unnecessary, but very much appreciated.
2: Yeah, we're touched. So, thank you. They're lovely earrings, and I like the history connection, and um, I guess this one can go out to you since you're in Sydney. So
0: <laughs> hope you like Bush Rangers. Yeah, and I didn't read the full postcard, but he did mention that we should wear them whenever we talk about Queen Victoria, which will have to be a lot since we end up mentioning <laughs> her comes all the time. Up all the
2: time. Yep. I just keep them ready to put on whenever we're doing a, an episode on her.
0: Yes, and you don't have to send us a gift to get on listener mail <laughs> or to have your podcast ideas heard or anything like that. We read all our mail no matter who sends it no matter what comes along with it and you can write us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com or you can look us up on Facebook or on Twitter at in History. Be sure to check out
1: our new video podcast Stuff from the Future Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived Download it today on iTunes